Welcome to the Italian Financial Advisor podcast, exploring all aspects of your financial life in Italy. I'm Andrew Lawford with the Spectrum IFA Group. Today we have the opportunity to hear the point of view of an Italian tax practitioner. I'm speaking with Judith Ruddock, who works with the firm Del Geizel Piccioni. You can find their website in the show notes. I have known Judith and other members of the firm for a number of years because they have the dubious honour of providing me and my family with tax advice. They have specialised in foreigners moving to live in Italy and so have some excellent perspective on the kinds of issues that people face when taking up residency here. But I'll let Judith explain a bit of their history. Well, the, uh, the main studio is in Livorno in Italy and Antonio has worked in that studio since the beginning, which must be coming on for 30, more than 30 years now, I think. And some time ago, again, it must be about 15, 15 years ago, we decided to set up a, a branch, or an unofficial branch of the uh, studio in England to attend in particular to um, UK residents, UK nationals who are intending to go out to Italy or who had interest in Italy, properties in Italy, and who were just completely at a loss as to what their obligations were in tax terms and their residency obligations as well. So we now work, we have this branch in, in the UK and we have the, the main office in Liverpool, which deals directly with the agency and all the major institutions. And it's niche work, but it's very, very much needed work, I feel, because there are a lot of people who don't have huge amounts of disposable income who are going out to Italy and setting up in Italy. And they really can't afford to pay top four um, accountants fees for some sort of idea on their Italian, a strange UK Italian or US Italian fiscal situation. I think we are, I wouldn't say indispensable. But um, it is very useful to be able to talk over fiscal matters with somebody who speaks you know, English mother tongue. In your experience, what do you, what are some of the things that people come up against when they're moving to Italy that perhaps they don't expect and that could benefit from some advanced planning? I mean, I think the number one problem for anyone moving to Italy is always sorting out residency and the difference between residency and tax residency and the consequences of being tax resident rather than tax non-resident. And that is is just about universal, I think, in all the, the people who approach us or who, having moved to Italy, you know, then approach us with their situations. There's general confusion and it's, it's understandable. It's also understandable that a lot of people get to the position of, of being resident without realising it or being tax resident without realising it. Because, as, as we know, one of the criteria for being a resident is that, is that you signed on as resident with the Anagrafit, which is the list of residents held at the local commune. And people are encouraged to do it, especially in the context of a house purchase, because there's the rather nice incentive for people who are residents that they pay 2% stamp duty instead of 9% stamp duty. So obviously, in all those negotiations, they're encouraged, oh, you will obviously be signing on as resident, won't you? And when they understand the incentive that's there, then most people will say yes. They're expected to do it because if you stay any length of time in, in Italy, you find that without residency, a lot of things are a lot more difficult. So um, you know, being a resident it makes it easy for you to purchase a car or transfer a car. 
into your own name. You can get a little bit of a discount on your utility bills if you're a resident. You can open a bank account much more easily if you're a resident. So people find, you know, if they are there for any sort of length of time, oh, well, you know, yes, I really ought to sign on as resident because it makes life easier. And also, of course, there is actually technically an obligation to sign on as a resident if you're in the country for longer than three months. You're supposed to decide whether you're staying there on a more permanent basis or whether you're going to move on, at which point if you want to stay permanently, then you're technically supposed to sign on as a resident. So for all these reasons, a lot of people will find themselves signed on as resident, and at no stage is it ever explained to them what the consequences of that are. And as, as we know, the consequences briefly are that as a non-resident, you would be obliged to declare um, any income arising in Italy. So if you had a, a rental, a house you rented out in Italy, that would be the sort of income you need to declare in Italy. And, and that's an end of it, basically, just the income that arises in Italy. Um, if you are a resident, then you need to declare all your income worldwide in Italy and also your assets abroad, so property, real estate that you hold abroad and um, any financial assets you hold abroad for the purposes of the two sneaky little wealth taxes that they have in Italy and they don't have in, in many other countries. And for most people, that is, I mean, I'd say for everybody, it's a significant difference. And for most people, it can be a huge difference, the difference between declaring what you earn in Italy, which is often nothing, um, and what you earn worldwide. So it's a huge consequence of becoming tax resident, and people aren't aware of it. And they certainly aren't aware that, that signing on as residents getting this little 7% incentive on, on the stamp duty of the, of the house purchase will have involved in becoming tax resident. It's not the only way you can become tax resident, but it's certainly the most important way, because in all the cases that we have of people who've fallen foul of the agenzia, the, the, the Italian tax authority, the agenzia always looks straight away at the registration um, on the anagrafe at the Comune. So if you're on that, that's where they start looking at you. Just to sort of stop you there for a second, yeah. I think what a lot of people would answer you and say, oh, yes, but I, my centre of you know, vital affairs, if you like, is still yeah. somewhere else. I mean, let's, mm -hmm. let's use the UK as an example, because that's your area of, yeah. of expertise uh, more than other countries, although you do deal with people from all over the world. But the, the UK itself has quite complicated and stringent residency requirements and a lot of mm -hmm. people would say to you oh but I've read the rules on the HMRC website and I'm definitely resident in the UK so what do you say to people who just automatically assume that because they're British and they've bought a property in the UK in Italy which they're not actually planning on living in full time and they have inadvertently declared residency but really their lives are still based in the UK or mm -hmm. even if they're not based in the UK they have a very good chance of being considered tax resident from a UK perspective what do you say to people in that situation yeah I mean it's it's a very interesting point Andrew because it, ha it is something that has been subject to a lot of change reasonably recently if we go back only a few years the agency took a very dogmatic approach and if they could see that you were registered on the anagraphy, that was for them open and shut case that you were a resident in Italy. And they weren't at all interested in listening to anybody saying, oh, but no, 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 I'm sure I'm still resident in England, or sorry, resident in the UK, um, or I'm sure I'm still resident elsewhere. They just didn't want to know. And they would proceed on the basis that you were registered um, on the anagraphy from year dot, and they would draw up their tax claims and they would just present it to you. And you would then be, the client would then be, obliged to defend themselves against that as, as best they can, which is one thing to talk about it sort of in a relaxed fashion, 
but when you're actually up against in the process of being investigated by the agencia, it's quite difficult then to come up with your arguments, coherent arguments, um, and you don't often have the evidence to back you up. So, you know, as, as I say, the agency took a, quite a, a black and white approach to, um, to residency in previous years. Recently, we've seen that changing, and it's very interesting because we're getting increasing cases where people have said, look, I'm, I'm dual resident, and they're appealing to the double tax treaty, the relevant double tax treaty between Italy, let's say, and the UK, to back up their residency. And we're finding that cases where people have appealed to the DTT and started looking at the double tax treaty and analysing what it says, they're starting to have some success with these cases where the agency is considering them to be tax resident in, in Italy. So that's very encouraging. Obviously, we're only at the start of it. And obviously, whenever we're looking at case laws, opposed to statute law, it's always very bit, bit and piecey. You know, there's always, um, each case is decided on its own facts, on its own circumstances. So, you know, as, as a practitioner, we, we're sort of trying to look and see if we can draw some sort of thread, some sort of coherent factors, maybe, which are relevant or which are more important. But, you know, we always have to remember that every case is divided, is decided on its own um, particular circumstances. And we can't rush to sort of, to sort of start saying, oh, well, if, if this is the case, then you're fine. Fine, or if that is the case, then you're fine. But certainly, we can look at what the double tax treaty has to say about residency. First of all, bear in mind that you need to to be able to prove. You know, obviously, that you're a resident or tax resident in Italy, which isn't the only problem because people in this position tend to be already registered with the Anagrafe. But you also need to be able to show that you are resident in the UK. So you need to look, let's say, at the UK rules. As you said, they are they are multiple and uh, fascinating. There's a whole flowchart of things. Sometimes it, it is relatively straightforward. Often it isn't. There's sort of you know, automatic residence in UK and non-automatic residence in UK. Residence in UK because you've got certain ties to the to the, to the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you can go through that process and conclude that you are in the, in the same year that you were registered on the Anagrafe in Italy, you're also resident in the UK, then you have on the face of it conflict of tax residencies. And you need to look to Article 4 of the, of the Double Tax Treaty to see what it says about it. Uh, and what Article 4 does is lay out a hierarchy of criteria which you have to apply to your case to decide which of these uh, tax jurisdictions is likely to have precedence. So it isn't the case where we often get clients that say, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm dual tax resident then because I know I'm tax resident in the UK. And they seem to sort of, they sort of sit on it and say, that, that's it then, that's my position, dual tax resident. So yes, but you have to go one step further because as dual tax resident, you have to decide, or somebody has to decide, which of the of the tax jurisdictions has priority. You don't end up, you don't really don't want to end up paying full tax in the UK and full tax in the UK. So my question would be, who decides? Because you've got oh. you've got two jurisdictions. Presumably, both of them are quite keen to apply taxation to worldwide income of this individual, Absolutely. and you've got you've got the uh, let's let's assume that there is a double tax treaty before, between the the country of origin and, and mm-hmm. Italy, so you've got that. Can I ask beforehand and say, here's this is my situation. Could somebody please tell me where you know what the rules are in my case? How do I decide, yeah. or, or or who decides? It, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if if you could just if we could just write off to the tax authority and say this is the situation. Can you say you know which which of these tax authorities has has precedence? And we can't do that for some reason. The agency, well, I can understand the reason. The Agencia dell'Entrate is quite clear that um, the one thing it does not make decisions on and cannot be appealed to is residency and tax residency. 
So the one thing you think they would be very <laughs> absolutely on top of, they refuse to give an opinion ahead of time. So we can't do that. So we would look at Article 4 and do what we can to apply the, the various um, criteria to their situation and see if we can come with a conclusion, making it clear to the client that actually any final decision would always lay in the hands of the Agencia del Entrati if they were making the investigation or HMRC if they were making the investigation. And it is only at the end of the investigation that you will come up with a definitive decision as to you know, who, is, who is ruling the roost here which is obviously totally unhelpful for somebody who wants to know now so that they can prepare themselves and um, you know, adjust their affairs, et cetera, et cetera, accordingly. Even if I'm in perfectly good faith and I'm trying mm. to do things the right way, so I'm not trying to gain mm. some advantage which, mm. uh, which I shouldn't have, I still am in the situation where somebody could come and have a look at my affairs and say, well, you know, I don't think that what you've been doing is correct. Mm. And so this is what I think the situation. And at that point, I have to make a decision whether or not I'm going to get into a fight with them and everything yeah, that that entails. entails. What yeah. does that entail exactly? So the, the problem with, with fighting with the agency is that things are stuck against you. I mean, first of all, it's the time that will have passed from when you made the original decision, let us say, that, that you were not resident in Italy. You know, you looked at the Article 4 and you're confident you're not, you're not resident in Italy. It'll only be probably many, many years down the line that the agency will look at your case, you know, they will note, let us say, your registration on the anagraphy, and then we'll look for a, a return in Italy showing your worldwide income, et cetera, et cetera. They don't find it. And so they, they write you a letter or they invite you to um, to attend a, a meeting with them. And it won't be for some time because the agency works very much retroactively. I mean, it's always looking, it's, it always tends to be looking at the last year that's about to disappear over the horizon where they can still attack you. Five tax years, uh, it's, it's, it's more in certain instances because it includes the year you're in it. If you look at it as six tax years, so we're looking at 2016 now, is you know in December that will disappear over the horizon for the agency. So, that, so they are looking at 2016, which is not very great if you're sitting in 2022 and suddenly being asked to justify your position you know, from, from six years previously. That's one way that, that things sort of militate against you. The other one is the whole procedure for making these investigations. As I said, they'll tend to send you a letter, just an inquiry, or they'll just invite you to come and, and speak to them, which in itself is, is a traumatic experience for most people. And uh, when you get there, you know, possibly thinking, oh, this is the moment when I say, hey, I'm, I'm not tax resident here. They'll just start asking questions about what your income is and what assets you have overseas, and um, they'll get all this information from you. And at that point, they may just conclude the interview and let you go home. Or you may say, well, actually, no, 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 yes, you must take into account that I'm not quite a resident here. And here are my arguments and here's my documents. They very probably won't even be interested. It isn't, that isn't the forum in which that sort of thing can be decided. So you can't just go along to the agency and say, no, I'm, I'm not tax resident. And they say, oh, OK, sorry, absolutely, off you go. They will just carry on. You know, they've decided you're worth investigation and they will carry on with their investigation on the basis of the information which you've now given them. So when you go home after a couple of weeks, what you're likely to find is that you'll be served with or will arrive to the post basically a bill. They'll say, you know, thanks for the lovely chat. On the basis of the information you gave us, you know, we think you're tax resident and this is the bill for your tax residency that we've assessed on the basis of all the information you just gave us. And at that point, obviously, you're on the back foot because you're trying to defend yourself. You have to be defending yourself against an action by the agency, which is, which is proceeding. And you have to decide, am I, am I so confident of my position that I'm going to go through 
not one but possibly three instances of contesting this with the agency yeah? and all the concomitant you know wear and tear on your nerves um sleepless nights that's because of potential appeals yeah, because you the say agency, three instances yeah. Exactly. Well, because the agency has you know limitless resources, basically. So if they lose it the first instance, they'll they'll almost certainly, almost always, just appeal it to the second instance. And if they lose it, that they'll go on to the court of cassation, which is the, in the highest court in the land. Um, um, and what's my what's my cost? I mean, if if I've got a substantial bill and I think mm. I can defend myself, and and yeah. you know, let's say I've taken advice, and and the advice is that I've got a reasonable chance. What's it going to cost me to? defend myself let's say all the way to the the cassazione yes well it's three lots of professional fees but it's also the fact that when they present you this bill at the beginning of, of the proceedings they say if you agree to pay you're not going to contest this then the fines will be reduced to 30 percent not by 30 percent but to 30 percent so there's a 70 percent reduction on the fines and often people you know when they sit as i say you know it's, it's all very well to to theorise about it, but when you're actually sitting there with the bill in front of you and the prospect of years and years of litigation and stress and cost um, to defend yourself, they often think, well, you know what, maybe I'll just take this, you know, I'll take this on the chin, I'll pay the tax, I'll pay the, you know, the, the reduced costs. Yeah, um, yeah and- because... People t- look at it sometimes as a question of principle. I, I actually yes. have a pra- practical mm-hmm. story. It's got nothing to do with residency, but this was a few years ago. We mm-hmm. bought a, a small plot of land, and we declare. I mean, when the when we went to the notario, the price that was declared in the you know the sale and purchase agreement yeah. was exactly what we paid. The agency, after a couple of years, sent us a letter saying, "Well, we've done. We've had a look, and we think that you." you've underdeclared its value by um. X amount and we've recalculated all the taxes that you should have paid on that and this is good. And the amount of money involved, if we contested it, it was yeah. going to cost, I can't remember exactly, but let's say it was 6,000 euros. Obviously with the fact that we would have had to have gone to, to court in order to have defended mm. ourselves. If mm. we paid straight away without argument, mm. then it was going to cost 2,000 euros and seeing as it was either on us or or on the seller, so we were both obliged jointly for, for this yeah. thing. We ended up agreeing with the seller that we just pay a thousand euros each in order to make the problem go away. Yeah, right. And it was quite grating at the time because it was completely spurious what they had drawn out. But mm. when you're in that situation, so you know the questions of principle fall away, and you just get your wallet <laughs> out. And I mean that, that was a fairly minor example. If you're in a situation where there's a serious amount of money involved, yeah. obviously the calculations become yeah. a lot Absolutely. more complicated. What do you say? I occasionally come across people, especially the people who live in sort of isolated rural areas, and they uh, I have heard a few times who will say, oh, yes, but my neighbour has a friend whose cousin knows somebody who makes the tea at the local agencia, and if anything happened, you know, they, they would just go down there and sort it out for me. And my answer there is always, well, that might have been something that might possibly have worked 20 years ago, but I think mm-hmm. that the agency has become far more far more technologically enabled yeah. than you would expect them to be. Yeah. And that this sort of local sweep it under the carpet activity yeah. is yeah. really not able to happen anymore. Do, do you agree with that? Yes, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. The agency in particular has smartened up its procedural organisation lately. It's got so much more, as you say, technological, so much more information at its fingertips. And I think it'd be, we, we don't see that huge variation. We don't see so much people who know people Interesting, we had a client the other day who was saying, oh, yes, but I know someone in the agency who works down there. I said, okay, well, if you want to try the informal methods, by all means, do so, but we don't guarantee. 
And he did come back later and said, no, it's done. <laughs> so could you just carry on? So, so I thought you were going to talk to your friend and the... No, 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 that didn't work. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, yes, I think sometimes these um, old boy networks are a little bit overvalued. Well, especially because the mechanism by which people are getting picked up, especially mm. let's talk about people who have been resident here and who possibly have neglected to declare foreign assets. This is a big yeah. one that comes up a lot. Yeah. And now with these common reporting standards, yeah. we've. I know that you've had a number of cases and I get phone calls, not all the time, but every mm-hmm. now and again, from people who've received a letter saying, oh, we've mm-hmm. noticed that mm-hmm. you have, let's say, a property in the UK, because I know yeah. this is something that's happened. We can't see it declared in your tax return. Yeah. Why not? And you yeah. just get a letter, which has mm-hmm. pretty much been automatically generated. So it's not somebody there who's actually investigating you. They've no. just received a bit of information and this letter comes. And once you get the letter, you're in deep water That's at it. that yes. point. The whole process starts. That's right. I mean, and this information is coming from the tax authorities you know, automatically as to what one taxpayer will have in their own country and, and, and will sort of link or not link with what they're declaring in, in the tax return in the other country. So, yes, there's there's a lot of those letters flying around. We've had a lot of letters this year as well, much nicer letters, actually, which note that, that there appears to be an anomaly in what you've declared as your overseas assets. And would you like to just readdress it and correct it if possible? And that's a wonderful letter to have. In fact, again, quite a recent move by the agency, I think, to be a little bit more client-friendly, as it were, and just sort of ask people, you know, I think there's something wrong here. Would you like to think about this and, and you, you have a chance to modify your so that gives you a mm, chance to do a refiling, yeah. does it? Yeah, okay. That's it. Gives you a chance to refiling, and it isn't in the context of an investigation by the agency. Where again, the tables tend to be turned because once the agency is is pursuing it actively, then there's a lot of these sort of offers, let's say, and discounts and um, certain treatments that fall away. You know, they're sort of slightly more favourable when it's you who's coming to them and saying, "Ah, I forgot to declare this, that, and the other." When instead it's them pursuing you and having discovered that you're not doing this, that, and the other, it tends to be you know, the, the fines are higher. They won't take into account um, taxes which which they might have. You know, if you pay tax in your country of origin, they won't necessarily discount that from what you owe Italy. So you're just losing a huge amount of tax, which had you done it yourself at the beginning, um, you would have been able to discount. So it's it's always very much worth looking at those letters. Um, and as I say, we've had quite a few of them in quite recently. So the agency was obviously putting people up on, on these anomalies. Well, I must um, admit, I like the idea much more of being invited to have another look yes. <laughs> rather than getting a le- letter saying, we know yeah. that you've got yeah. this and, and we're coming and, and, yeah, and here's the bill. Certainly yeah. that's nice. And from experience, the sooner you deal with it, mm-hmm. the lighter the, the fine is going to be. I mean, to Absolutely. one practical example, I had a, a client who realised that he had forgotten to declare a foreign asset in his tax return for right. the, the one that was filed in 2021 relating to the 2020 tax year. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he picked up on it before the end of February yeah. of this year meant that he was able to refile and, and the fine was something like 25 euros or something. Yeah. It was really, yeah. it was almost nothing. And so yeah. if you think that you you might be in this situation, the sooner you get on top of it, the better yeah. it's going to be. It, it also makes a difference, Andrew, if you've actually filed a return or not. Obviously, if you're in the position where you've, you've never filed a return because you, know, you don't believe you're a resident or you don't understand that you're a resident, then the fines start showering down. If instead you've, you've made a return but there's something slightly wrong with it, then it's it's the, the approach of the agency is much more softly, softly, and they say, yes, you can amend it and modify it. And obviously, again, 
the more recent it is, the easier it is to amend. If you're going back several years with a long history and you've not um, been declaring something that you should have declared, then it will be more expensive to put right. But if you're just correcting last year's return, yes, that will be enormous pain, as we say. Okay, so if let's talk about how you can mitigate this right from the start. So, if, yes. um, I mean, we always encourage people to have this discussion before they've actually made the move. So if you do Absolutely. get some wise person that comes and gives you a call and say, we're thinking of moving sometime next year, and mm. this is my situation, what, what are some of the things that you tell them to do in order to make their lives a lot easier when they do make the move? Apart from being clear as to whether you want to become resident and understanding what being tax resident will mean, what we often advise is that clients should create a residence file. And this applies equally to people going into the country and starting up new, as to people who are already there, but who are sort of relying on some belief that they're not tax resident. And it can work two ways, because there's another chunk of people who want to take advantage of some of the incentives that are available for people who are resident. And in their case, they actually want to prove that they were tax resident in certain years. So um, you can use the file as you wish. The file, we say that every year is a sort of methodical housekeeping. Have a look at what has happened during the year um, and make a little file. The thing here, Andrew, is I would never encourage people to to fabricate something that wasn't true. You know, if the truth of the matter is that you are spending the majority of your time in Italy and you really have transferred there and you're just trying to you know, wiggle a quick one past the agency, forget it. It's not going to work. But if, on the other hand, you're just someone who genuinely is spending the majority of the time out of Italy and, and is registered with an agriface and has that presence in Italy, but really is very much based in the UK, well, just make sure that you can show it. If you do this sort of... Um, process of analysing your position year by year, it also gives you the chance yourself to realise actually, possibly, I'm, I'm pushing things a little bit here, you know, actually looking at what I have, you know, I thought I was resident outside the Italy, but actually looking at what I've created here, you know, maybe that's not going to wash and maybe I should think actually about making a tax return in Italy, the avoidance of doubt and to avoid any sort of unpleasantness some years down the line. So it has a you know, double function, this idea of, of the residence file. I guess change is is generally a difficult thing to have to come up against. But often, especially for retirees, I always say that moving to Italy is not the end of the world. As long as you plan it properly, you can actually end up paying, I mean, maybe not less tax, but, mm. but certainly not a tragic amount of tax. Mm. Let's move on to happier things, because up until now, we've just been talking about the negative side of, uh, and I'm sure you could probably talk about that for another three or four hours. But there are some nice things out there as well. So there have been quite a few incentives that have been launched recently in order to attract either uh, inbound workers or um, essentially retirees. Let's leave aside for the the, the issue of the 100,000 regime, because I think each one of those, I mean, if you're in the lucky situation where paying a flat Mm -hmm. tax of 100,000 euros is a good good option for you, then I think you'll probably benefit from a, a you know a thorough opinion for your particular situation but there are some other regimes there's the seven percent regime that i yeah. call it so should we start with that one because there's been Absolutely. a lot of interest yes um as, as you say andrew some very interesting and extremely generous incentives on the table just now the seven percent regime is aimed at pensioners so it's for people who draw upon an overseas pension there are various criteria 
you have to spend five previous tax years outside of Italy. You have to come from a country which has some sort of tax arrangements, tax agreement with Italy, which is mo- mostly the case in, in the case of our clients. Certainly, double tax treaty counts as one of those kinds of arrangements. You have to register as resident and transfer your residency to a comune in what they call the Mezzogiorno, very romantically, which is basically the south, all, all the ones that are south of, uh, of, of Rome, basically. And you need to transfer your residency, sorry, to a comune, which has fewer than 20,000 inhabitants. Or there's another little amendment, which is people who go to communes of fewer than 3,000 inhabitants in one of the communes which was affected by the, the earthquakes. Subsequent to the recording of this interview, the limit of 3,000 inhabitants for the earthquake-struck areas has been increased to 20,000. So this may create further appealing possibilities for those who are considering moving to the regions of Lazio, Umbria and Le Marche. Pensioners who are interested in the quiet life in the south or earthquake-stricken areas of Italy are entitled then to pay 7% on all their income, so fixed rate. A couple of provisos is that as with all fixed rate tax deals in Italy, what it means is that you cannot set off any other credit um, against that tax rate. So you pay the 7% and that's it. So if you're also obliged to pay tax in another country, so for example, in the UK, if you're renting out a property in the UK, um, you have to declare that income in the UK and you'll be taxed on that income in the UK. You will also need to pay 7% on it in Italy and you won't be able to set off the tax you paid elsewhere. No, just talking about that. So, uh, I mean, let's take somebody, uh, as sometimes happens, where their only source of income from the UK is rental income, but mm-hmm. it's under the threshold for, what is it, 12500 yeah. 12, or something? Yeah, exactly. What happens in those situations there? So they've paid no tax in yes. the UK. They, they're just going to end up paying 7% on that that's right. The amount that they've effectively received. But yeah. if I'm in a situation, let's say my UK income is £40,000, something mm-hmm. like that, and I've paid, I don't know, let's just use a round number, £10,000 of, of tax on whatever mm-hmm. whatever that was in the UK, mm-hmm. you're saying that I wouldn't get, I would still be taxed at 7% on the on yeah. the gross amount on the 40000 so I yeah. would get no credit for... Well, yeah, set off of the UK tax already paid. I thought with property there was a mechanism whereby you would only be taxed on the net amount that you had that your net taxable income on your so you've got allowable expenses so let's say yeah. you've got 10 10,000 gross income and let's mm-hmm. say there's 2,000 of allowable expense so you're actually taxed in the UK on 8,000 I would that's be right. taxed in, in Italy on the 8,000 as well yes that's right you, so, you so what I don't get as a credit for the any tax that I've actually had to pay in in the UK, but I do get the benefit of the fact that I've got allowable expenses, if you like, just to sort of... That's, that's right, just, just because of the way it works, because in the UK you are allowed to make all sorts of deductions against the rental income that wouldn't be allowed in Italy. And um, you take advantage of that because the agency will encourage, you know, they expect you to declare your taxable income in the UK as that, that, that is the figure, minus any deductions. What about sources of income which are generally untaxed? So, for example, local government pensions is one, I think, in the UK, which are considered only taxable in the UK. Yeah. Would uh, do, do they become taxable under this flat tax regime or is it, does that no. remain as it were? No, they remain. The government service pensions, so it's generally people who worked in local authority, some people who work in NHS, some teachers, but not generally university lecturers. These people are all considered to be sort of civil servants, let us say, and their pensions are only ever taxed in the country in which they were paid, like they were employed. That holds good for the 7% as well. It's not undeclarable and not taxable in Italy. 
So I'm just struggling to think about, have you come across situations where people who were considering using the 7% regime actually discovered that it wasn't going to be in their interests to do so because of this? Or uh, I'm just struggling to imagine somebody who would be in that situation. That, no, that certainly has never occurred as yet. You know, because the 7% is such a low tax rate, it's quite difficult to imagine that submitting all your worldwide income to tax in Italy, even taking into account tax you've paid elsewhere, would end up with you paying less than 7%. And the, the, the thing you've, you do have to be careful about, I think, is the type of pension that you're receiving, right? So not yes. all pensions and Absolutely. not all sources of income Absolutely. qualify well, was, for the regime. I was trying to be positive about this, Andrew, as you suggested. <laughs> but um, this is one of those cases where the agency came out with this wonderful new scheme and they talked about you know, overseas pensions, 7% brilliance. So everybody you know, looked vaguely at the, the headline sort of news and said, great, you know, I've got a pension from overseas. That's fantastic. I'll go in and, and, uh, and they all rushed off. But the pensions that we're talking about, it, it was slightly misleading because the Article 49, which is what it referred to, talks about pensione di ogni genere. So it could hardly be more generous. <laughs> Any kind of pension will do fine. But it was only sort of later on that people kind of noticed that actually that article is um, talking about, it's in the context of relatively level dependentes, and we're talking about employed earnings. So I'm talking about pension only generally, any kind of pension, but any kind of employment pension, any kind of pension that's coming as a result of your work, not you know what frequently passes for pensions, um, especially in the UK, the US, in a sort of a retirement policy, uh, investment policy, this will provide you with a pension of, et cetera, et cetera. They're not interested in those. And it has been very difficult because Italy has always been quite traditional with its pensions. It hasn't been a field for great expansion um, like it has in, in other areas of the world. And they're really quite stuck with this quite rigid idea of what a pension is. And they're talking about periodical, continuous payments made by law often they're still looking for those kind of characteristics to decide whether a pension is a pension. Something that often comes up for us, periodic drawdowns from a UK SIP or mm. a 401k mm. in the States, something like that, which yeah. you can demonstrate that yes. it is money that you've accumulated as part of your working life. That's right. If there is that co connection, is that yeah. sufficient? It's, it's not necessarily sufficient. I mean, as all these things, they depend on the particular circumstances. The agency, you know, they're a bit bewildered looking at the age of qualification for some of these pensions because some of them you could be drawing down at a relatively young age, and in Italy that looks a bit odd. Because one thing age. they definitely didn't put into this oh. law, as far as I'm aware, is an age requirement. There is no minimum age, is there? But it doesn't. It's sort of built into the word pensione. Pensione is something that you get when you, you know, reach a certain age. And it's a regular thing that you're entitled to that has to be paid for you by law because of the contributions that you and your employers made over the years. So it's almost implicit that there's some kind of age requirement. They didn't think about saying, well, it has to be, you know, you can't be um, 50 or it can't be 40 because, because that would be not entirely unheard of in Italy, but relatively rare. So we have this, this slight ambiguity as to whether a particular pension will be considered a pension for um, the agency's purposes. And what we say, if, if there's anything that isn't, you know, I mean, obviously some people just have a lovely occupational pension. There it is. Um, that was their employer. Here he is, still paying the pension years down the line. That's perfect. Absolutely fantastic. If instead you've got something that isn't quite like that. We had a client recently who had, who did have a lovely occupational pension, but then they decided to sort of transfer it to another kind of pension provider. They sort of sold off the liability, got uh, the pension manager to take it over. So now it looks much more like a sort of private pension 
and we're saying, well, in this case, I think probably we should, you know, to, to avoid any sort of doubt and very painful bills further down the line, let's let's go to the agency here because this isn't a question about residency. This is a question about your pension. So I'm saying, look, this is my pension. It was built up through years of work for this employer. On this date, they decided to transfer it all to a different pension management in some sort of big, I can't remember which one it was in this case, but something quite recognisable as a, as a sort of private pension manager. But it's still my pension and it still came from my occupation and my employment. And in those cases, I think you, you submit it to the, you submit an interfell of the court, so you're asking for a ruling from the decision from the agency as to whether this is a pension that would qualify for 7%. What's, the, what's involved in doing that and how long does it take to actually get the answer? Okay, they, they, they reserve themselves 90 days to answer, which is generally okay. As I say, we're talking about people who are thinking about this ahead of time, that's usually plenty of time. You should get a, a pretty definite yes or no. And I'll give this to their credit. They don't, in these cases in particular, they don't tend to hide. You get a yes or no. You've, you've given the answer. And obviously, it depends on the evidence you've given them. You, know, you have to be very clear in what you're saying and make sure that yes, you've, if you've all of that. If you've spun it too much in yes, the story yeah. that you've told, then you could, yes. I think they always preface it by saying, assuming that what you've told us is actually yes, true, true yes. then <laughs> this is what we think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, but if you if you lay it on the line fairly objectively, um, you, you, you get a, a good answer, you know, an answer, yes or no, and at least then you can make your plans accordingly. I mean, so, would he, for example, a UK state pension would that definitely qualify? Yes, yeah, apparently, I'm, I'm not entirely clear why because I don't think. I mean, I know UK state pensions aren't always connected to a period of work because you know, you're just being old, you get a state pension. Yes, a state pension appears to be absolutely. No problem at all. And as we say, occupational pensions that really are coming from your previous employer, no, no problem at all. But anything that's a little bit more vague or a little bit more doubtful, ask for a ruling. I mean, this, it, it, it's wonderful because if you get a ruling, a positive ruling, you don't have to worry about it again, you know, as I say, provided you told the truth. And if you get a no, well, at least you know. And it's better to know now than in yes. five years' time when you're presented with the, with, with the bill. And there's uh, there was another example that I, I came across on was somebody who had a disability pension and that I think it would be again a case to ask for for a ruling because if it was a disability pension resulting from your working career maybe if it was a disability pension resulting from the fact that you were born with some kind of handicap then Mm -hmm. then that could be a different kettle of fish I mean again it really depends on the interpretation that they're going to uh, that they're going to give it. All right. Anyway, I mean, it's still a great opportunity, and mm-hmm. I think I think the aside from the seven percent, the incentive really is good for people because it exempts them from the foreign asset declaration requirements and the mm-hmm. foreign asset wealth taxes, and so that can be a real problem for people mm-hmm. moving here, especially if they have things like very valuable property outside of the EU. That can mm-hmm. be a real issue in terms of declaration but also the cost of it let's not get too deeply into it but it's worth mentioning that there is that incentive uh, as well which probably makes your life as a commercialista as a, a lot happier too yes two nasty little wealth taxes which we don't have to worry about um and just to mention them as you said andrew i think most people listening will probably be aware that the ev it's called is the one on properties held overseas and that is charged at 0.76% of the value of the property. Note that for people in the UK who, who voted to leave the EU, 
shot themselves in the foot slightly, although I don't suppose many of them were living in Italy at the time, because previously that value was based on the council tax value of the property um, in the UK, and that was always, because they were set back in 91, I think, it was always much, much lower than the actual value of the property. Um, and now instead we're looking at the value of the property, so it's now going to be looked at the purchase price, which, again, complete lottery. If you purchased many, many years ago, then your value will be relatively low, if you've purchased in the last few years, then you're going to be paying much higher. Yeah, well, that was that was a lottery in that some people actually yeah. had their, well, very rare people had their situation improved because of this, because maybe they bought a, a property back in the 60s or 70s yeah. even, yeah. and that could that could have had a very low cost basis. Other people who've bought in recent times yeah. are probably facing a completely different situation. Yeah. But certainly most of the times I speak to are suffering from that because the, because the council tax bans were so completely distorted. And the other wealth tax, of course, is IVAFE, which um, is attaches to financial assets held overseas. And those include even your humble bank account, although that is just a 34-euro flat tax, so it's not too much. Um, and it's 0.2% on the value of investments at the end of the year, all other types of investment held overseas. I wanted to talk about the inbound workers regime because mm-hmm. that is is relatively complicated, but I think it offers some some interesting opportunities. And I was actually reading this morning that there's just been a re, a recent decree which has essentially brought out the possibility of being a digital nomad in Italy yes, because yes. there was there was yeah. no I didn't realize it, but there was really no mechanism under Italian law for people to be to be able to come in here on a visa. Which mm-hmm. allowed them to work here, but for a foreign company. So there yep. was all, there, yep. there were various mechanisms that allowed you to apply to come in and work here for Italian companies. That's been long established for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. But this whole idea of the digital nomad working for some mm-hmm. foreign company, really having no connection to Italy apart from the fact that you have an individual who's sitting on a laptop in a cafe somewhere doing some work. That was completely foreign to Italian. Absolutely, it's it's a very exciting um, step forward in in this area, and it broadens the the plethora of people who could be interested and, and could take advantage of this incentive. The response from the agency came in September last year, um, so a little while back. But basically, clarifying that people who work remotely from Italy could qualify for this huge incentive of the Impatriati. And this, despite the fact that they were just basically working on the same contract that they've been working on previously. So take somebody who's been working in America quite happily um, for a company and then thought, especially during COVID, I think, you know, for obvious reasons, it kind of came out, hey, I can actually do this from home. Let's, should we start with the Empatriati and what it consists of? Okay, so we, we've had these incentives for people to come to Italy. Um, started off very, very restricted. It was for the big brains. It was the Cervelli, and it was for um, professors and lecturers at university. And it was really quite a restricted group. And then over the years, it's again, the platea has broadened and broadened. So you know, for a while, it was people that needed a degree or they needed to work in a, in a particularly specialised job. And now we have come to the position where take advantage of the benefit which I'll explain is extremely generous. All you need to show is that you have spent the previous two years as non-tax resident in Italy, that you intend to stay in Italy for at least two years, and if you don't, they will they will claw back the incentive they're giving you, and that you work predominantly in Italy. And those are the three criteria you have to meet, which you know, compared to what it was what was previously the hurdles that really put in your way is, is is relatively simple. The incentive that they're offering you is 
five years in which your taxable income is considered to be 30% from your actual income. So you're only going to be taxed on 30% of what you make. And there is also an additional five years if you have a certain number of children or you buy a property, in which case the sort of second uh, five-year period would be taxed at 50%. The rules in the South are even more generous. If you uh, take up residency in the South, you'll be taxed on only 10% of your taxable income for five years. And then another five years available, again, if you have a certain number of children or buy a property. And then in general, if you have three children, I think it's taxed on 10% of your taxable income. You know, as, as ever, there's a few little things. In this case, actually, there are complications which we perceived to be there and which more recently appear not to be there. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of good news. And one of them was, for example, in the beginning, they talked about needing, needing to show a, a break in your employment. So, for example, an Italian who, who was sent to work abroad um, and spent, spent more than two years abroad working for an Italian company or foreign company, if they can't show that stay abroad was an actual break in the terms of their employment, so they're coming back to fulfil the previous job on the previous terms and conditions, then that wouldn't qualify them for the, 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 the incentive. But also this idea of, of a connection between um, your move to Italy and, and the taking up of the work. So um, at the beginning, we thought, oh, my goodness. So people who just come from the UK and they've been doing this in the UK for however long, COVID happened, they decided, hey, I could do this in Italy. And everyone says, oh, that's fine. Doing it, Italy, it doesn't bother us. Well, there isn't then any connection. You know, there's no connection between their move to Italy and their taking up work. They're just doing it because they want to, not because their employer is insisting on it. So for a while, we were on the, on the impression that we needed to be providing some sort of you know, declaration for the employer that we now need this worker in Italy, and that's why he's going to Italy. Recently, as I say, with this smart working response you know, from September uh, last year, they're saying, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. If, if you're working you know, remotely from Italy, as long as you're presently working in Italy, which is to be, to be proved, then it doesn't matter if, if, if you're still working, you know, on the same, exactly the same contract as you have when you're working um, abroad. So, so we does that mean, to, go, mm. going back to your evidence for residency where you were, we were primarily talking before about people who are trying to prove that they're not resident, you're now in a situation where you're going yeah. to be, uh, let's say that you do, you know, you are a digital nomad, but you end up traveling for work quite a bit because you do consulting contracts, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. You're then going to have to, build up an evidence to show that you were here for a minimum of what 183 days Is that year, the... yeah, yes yeah the, the, okay. it's prevalent so it means the majority of the year you're working from um italy and, and there have been as you know there's always been lots of cases on particular little details but for the vast majority certainly of, of our clients who are just coming from abroad um, and, and wanted to work remotely the, the door is open and you can take advantage of these extremely extremely generous incentives for five years and, and up to 10 years. One thing that did, that, that, <laughs> that caused more confusion was the situation as regards IMPS, so social security. So somebody who's working can take advantage of this um, this incentive on their, ta- on their taxable income. That's the tax on their income, not the social security on their income. And we understood at the beginning that, that you know, the social security would still be charged on the full amount of what you're being paid, not 30%. But oddly, when it came to the, the, the production of the, of the UNICO, so the form for making the, de- the declaration, the way it had been constructed meant that IMS was calculated automatically on the reduced sum. 
So we had the position where people who had who were making a declaration usually hadn't taken out a self-employed position, so they're under a party to either working for themselves. They come to the end of the tax year, they declare their earnings. Their earnings automatically reduced to 30% and they're taxed on that. And also the imps was taxed on 30%. Because normally the imp the imps is is calculated on your the amount gross of tax mm. due is that right? So I mean let's say I have an income of a hundred and yeah. I've got allowable expenses of thirty, so I'm down to seventy. I would then yeah. pay whatever the imps applicable to me is on that seventy, That's and right. then whatever then net of that imps I would then be subject to to marginal tax on that. And you're saying that they that the mechanism is such that the seventy yeah. percent reduction will apply to the whole lot. It's, it's, it's very odd, Andrew, and I don't trust it, basically, for a couple of reasons. One is because, because the law didn't appear to say that. I mean, generally, when they're talking about, if you look at other schemes, like the forfeitario scheme, always very generous with the income tax, but no concessions on it. You know, you, so you get, you're paying 5% or 15% flat rate on your income um, in terms of the tax, sorry. But in terms of imps, you're, you're charged um, the full amount of imps, no, no discount available. So why they would suddenly produce this this incentive, which suddenly gave such a discount on imps, I don't know. Also, um, because, as I said, it didn't appear to be written in the law that way. There was nothing that indicated that that was going to be the case. Um, it, it was silent, basically, on imps. And, and we take silence on imps to mean that there was no change to imps. And the only reason it sort of, you know, everyone realised was because they, they saw the way the, the Unico in the form had been produced. So that, you know, it, it looks almost as if it was a mistake. <laughs> Again, another reason why I'm doubtful about it is because for employees, it doesn't work like that. If you look at the pay slip of somebody who is um, an employee and has applied for the incentive and is getting it, the favourable tax rate applied directly into his pay slip, he is still paying imps on the full amount of the pay, not the 30%. Totally unfair that an employee should be in such an unfavourable position in, compar- you know, in comparison to a self-employed person. Well, I mean, from, like a a phil- me. from a philosophical point of view, once you allow a proliferation of favourable tax regimes and, and incentives, then it mm. really becomes difficult to justify the full-flavoured version of your tax regime to the people mm. that are, that find themselves in that situation. And I know. Mm. I've come across some people recently who work for a multinational and have, you know, were seconded to Italy a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at more recently employed colleagues who uh, have the same gross salary as they do, but they're paying yeah. way less tax. And they're looking at that and saying, well, it's yeah. not really fair. But, fair. And, and mm-hmm. to be honest, it's not really fair on ordinary Italians, I don't Absolutely think. so. Not. It brings, the, it brings the sort of deeper yeah. question of where do we draw the line mm. with this. One of the things I read that has confused me is about the foreign employer. If they, mm. th- th- There was something that I read that suggested they might then be open to attack by the agencia for mm. running foul of the permanent establishment yeah. rules, yeah. which would have the consequence of you know, th- them potentially being subject to Italian tax, which obviously the, the employer wouldn't is under likely to be keen on have you come have you dealt with that issue specifically yeah i mean there is depending on how um sort of aware the employer is then yes there can be we have one case in particular where the employer was uk employer was very edgy about this idea of, of their digital nomad and um, taking up residence in italy and what that would mean for the company they did have a point because he wasn't just an ordinary employee he was pretty much the ceo of the company as well and at that point you know you're if your ceo of your company is sitting in italy then that has huge consequences for your 
for a UK company because it's been directed and managed by somebody who's an Italian resident. So, so that was a, a difficult one to negotiate. In fact, he you know, he ended up not being a CEO anymore. He had to renounce that position, and we made it very clear: you know, you must you know not just renounce the title. It you know means fundamentally that you will not be in charge of that company anymore. It's the employer's problem rather than the employee. So, since the majority of our clients come to us as as individuals, um, we say yes. You know, there is this potential problem. We can explain what it is. And I can understand where your employer is, um, has problems with it. He will have to sort it out. They will have to sort it out. There's nothing you can do about it other than you know, not come to Italy. So is there any difficulty for people who are moving here that, let's say, they're in what we would call generically a digital nomad situation, but what they mm-hmm. actually do is they consult through some kind of foreign company which they control? Does that... Yes. Well, yeah, and that's what we're touching on slightly there. If, if you're... You know, these, this idea of being a digital nomad or working... It, on your own account is one one thing much more straightforward but if you're working as an employee of, of, of a foreign employer it works fine if your employer genuinely is you know a detached third party from yourself you know so you're talking about a, a larger company and you don't have any participation or control a lot of people think hey i know what i'll do i'll set up a limited company in the uk and then i'll, I'll work for my uk limited company and i'll go and set up in, in italy as a digital nomad and, and work through or invoice my UK company. That is a whole other nest of vipers, really, because th- there is this problem that if you're controlling your company, controlling and managing your company from Italy, then you are pulling that company into Italian taxation. And if, if the agency finds out about it, then then it will be you know it will be expected to be you know registered and treated and taxed and administered as an Italian company as well as having all the obligations that it will still have in the UK because it is actually a UK yeah. incorporated company. That's a really interesting point. It's the fact that all of the things that we were talking about in terms of residency for individuals are also mm. at, at least in some measure mm-hmm. also applicable to to yeah. companies. Yeah. So you can have the Italian tax authorities come to you, go to a company and say, well, we've had a look at this. And we think on the basis of the facts, so, you know, the, the example that you gave, you've got somebody who's the owner and CEO of mm-hmm. a foreign registered company and they live in Italy. That could be a fair, depending on what that company does, that could be a fairly good indication yeah. that the company itself could be considered resident. The, the other thing I, I just want to ask, in terms of the inbound workers regime, is there any special treatment of passive financial income? So if you have savings or property abroad that you rent out, that kind of thing, do I get a reduction on the tax no. and the declaration requirements? No, there? That's, no that's an important point. So so these, this impatriati regime or, or benefit is only in relation to your, your earned income. So if you're self-employed, then we're talking about everything you earn that you invoice through your particular EVA, through your, your VAT registration. Um, and if you're an employee, then it's just your, your taxable income earned as an employee. So it's not going to have, it's not going to apply to, for example, if you've got rental income in another country, um, et cetera, et cetera, or passive income interest. Those, those will all be taxed under the ordinary rules. So it is just specifically referring to, the, to your work income, effectively. Okay, so that's an important part of of advanced planning, divided between active and passive income. Active income, fine, you get a nice nice incentive. Passive income, you need to look at it um, Mm -hmm. under the normal rules and and, and plan accordingly.
If any of this discussion has raised questions in your mind, please feel free to get in touch. Just Google Andrew Lawford Spectrum. I'd like to thank Judith Ruddick for her contribution. You can find her details in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and goodbye for now.